Well, thanks for being here. If we haven't met before, my name is Matt Ng. That's how you pronounce my last name. And uh, I have the joy of serving with Austin in Crossroads and leading the UCLA Bible study. It's a joy to be a part of that ministry. Uh, I've been at Grace here for the last 16 years. I know to some of you, I look like I'm 16, so um, I'll take it. Um, but I, I've been here uh, since uh, I was a freshman in college, and I'm just so grateful to uh, be a part of what God is doing here at our church. I'm so thankful. Uh, you are here because Abner's session is full. Um, but that's okay. Word on the street is his session's going till 3 o'clock, so we'll go down there together afterward. Um, uh, but in all seriousness, we are here this morning to talk about music and worship. Uh, no, admittedly, I'm not the foremost expert on the matter. Uh, in fact, I don't have any formal musical training. I feel like uh, Bill should be up here, or Mark Rice, or Mike Bohr, or uh, John Martin should be up here uh, addressing this topic. Uh, but I have uh, led worship for the past 15 or so years and have been involved in music ministry in various capacities. Uh, and music is something that I'm extremely passionate about because it is a, a, an extremely valuable tool for God uh, in his church. Uh, we are blessed that our church leadership thinks through these kinds of issues so well and leads us so excellently. Uh, but I believe whether you're in the choir uh, or you can't carry a tune in a bucket, uh, that we all have some growing to do uh, in our understanding of and in our approach to singing and to corporate worship as a whole. Uh, what we'll focus on this morning on the front end is, uh, in particular, congregational singing. Uh, and congregational singing is something that you and I participate in every Sunday, week in and week out. Yet it's something that we rarely talk about on this level, or even let alone think about uh, on this kind of why we sing kind of level. And so even for just that reason, I believe that it's a topic worthy of our attention this morning. Uh, music in the church has been and is a hotly contested topic. Uh, should we sing hymns, or contemporary songs, or both? What musical style is best? Uh, should we sing from hymnals or projected lyrics? Almost seems rhetorical sometimes. Uh, should the lights be on or off or halfway up? And don't even get us started about fog machines, right? Uh, <laughs> Which instruments are acceptable and which are not? That has changed even over the past few decades, it seems. What should be in the liturgy? And can we even call it a liturgy? Uh, whose songs should we and should we not sing? Uh, for a few decades now, uh, the worship wars have waged on. And they only seem to have quieted down because now there's other things to fight about on Twitter. Uh, or we've agreed to disagree just a little bit. Uh, we're just more firmly convinced of our camp, and then we've decided we'll call that discernment and move on. In this area of 
music and worship, uh, maybe in a lot of right ways, we've drawn lines. We've drawn convictional lines, lines in the sand. If you're one of us, you shall not pass, right? Uh, You shall not do this. You shall not sing this. But these are the things you can do and play and, and sing. Perhaps in all of this, our tone has gotten more aggressive than worshipful. This morning, I want to draw a different kind of lines. I want to draw vertical lines, Godward lines. I want to paint a picture of God-centered worship. And so my goal this morning is to equip you to think more highly and more rightly about music in corporate worship. For each and every one of you to, because of what the Bible says about why we sing, that today and next Sunday and every Sunday, that you would be prompted to come more prepared Uh, to engage more actively in the worship service, uh, to interpret your preferences and your brother or sister's preferences more generously and graciously, and that you and I would sing and worship more humbly and thankfully. Uh, So let's structure our time very simply around this idea of looking at why we sing. Uh, I want to give you four reasons why we sing. And and in these four reasons, I want to show you from the Bible why music is to be deeply treasured in God's church. We're going to take the next hour or so and look at these four reasons. And then uh, if we have time, I'll open it up to questions. And if not, we'll uh, talk kind of during the break uh, informally. But I want to look at four reasons why we sing. Uh, We sing first because God is worthy of our worship. At the foundational level, as we consider why we sing, we must first establish a baseline understanding that we serve a God who is worthy of our worship. Uh, The word worship comes from an old English word. It's literally worth-ship. And it means to give something worth or to demonstratively attribute value to something or someone by doing something or saying something. And so when we worship God, we ascribe value to Him. We attribute worth to him. We acknowledge that he is glorious and then we magnify that glory. Now, uh, there are several words and concepts in scripture that form our biblical concept of worship. Uh, there's, for example, the idea of service to the Lord, uh, serve the Lord with gladness. Uh, there's also the idea of Paying homage or bowing down, prostrate on the floor. Uh, You think of the examples of that in the Old Testament especially. Uh, There's the concept of sacrifice and even 
proper sacrifice, uh, both in the Old Testament and in the New. There's the concept that we all know of and are probably most familiar with, the idea of obedience. We know the Lord's commandment that if we love him, we are to obey his commandments. And that is worship. And then there's the idea of reverence or respect to the Lord, the God Almighty. All of these concepts capture the essence of biblical worship. And that's the appropriate response to who God is and what he has done. Which at the core happens in the heart. Happens in the heart first. And then it flows out in one's actions or words or in song. D.A. Carson defines worship this way. I think it's a helpful definition, a classic definition. Worship is the proper response of all moral sentient beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their creator God precisely because he is worthy, delightfully so. Pastor John refers to worship and defines it this way. He says, true worship is a response of adoration and praise prompted by truth that God has revealed. Uh, It's such a helpful definition as we think about uh, music especially, but worship as a whole. And then Sovereign Grace worship leader extraordinaire Bob Coughlin says, This way is very simply, worshiping God is exalting him in our heart and actions. So let's set the record straight right now on the common misconception that worship is equal to music and maybe vice versa. That worship is simply what happens during the singing time when the lights are down. I like what Matt Boswell says, another worship leader. He says this, Worship is far too heavy a doctrine for music to carry. That is almost to say that worship and the glory of God, the weight of God's glory is far too heavy for a simple thing, a great thing, but a simple thing like music to carry on its back. Worship is far greater and far wider and far heavier of a doctrine than music can simply carry. You see, worship, as we know, encompasses all of life. And God is worthy of our worship in all of life. It's what we know from Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, to be clear, friends, in our worship, we don't add value to God. He doesn't need our worship to still and always be truly who he is. You see, as the creator and sustainer of all things, he is the self-existent, self-sufficient God. He is 
dependent on no one and needs nothing outside of himself. Psalm 50, we know he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Look at Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That's Paul at Mars Hill, and he gives us such a helpful understanding of the big God that we serve and his worthiness as to our worship, our worship in all of life. In studying for this session, I came across a verse that, and even a, a passage that was so helpful in my own understanding of worship. Uh, it's at the end of First Chronicles, uh, when David is leading and sort of passing off the responsibility to his son Solomon, and he's leading Israel in giving. And they give thousands and thousands of talents of all of these different materials to God. And then David prays a prayer. And this is part of his prayer. He says, but who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to thus offer willingly? And it is for or because all things come from you. And of your own have we given you. You see, when we worship, whether it's how we live or when we sing, we don't give God something he doesn't already have. We give him what is his to begin with. He does not need us or what we bring, yet God is gracious to receive our worship. And so, friends, from the heart and with our lives, And with our lips, we attribute to and magnify the glory, honor, power, majesty of an infinitely worthy God. You see, any and all worth that we could possibly attribute to God, he is worthy of. And more, he is infinitely worthy of our worship. God, the Father, the creator and sustainer of all things, who is just, kind, good, and gracious, the author of salvation, he is worthy of our worship. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, by whom and through whom and for whom all things are made, the head of the church and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is worthy of our worship. God the Spirit, comforter, helper, keeper, the one who seals, guides, convicts, and reveals. He is worthy of our worship. God, eternally three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, worthy of our worship. And you and I, but sinners before our God. Unworthy to come into his presence. And yet God, being rich in mercy, uh, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved. And as Romans 5 says, through Christ we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And so as we live and as we sing, it is in that same grace in which we stand that we live and sing. As Hebrews 4 says, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And so as we live and as we sing, it is by the confidence we have in Christ that we approach him in worship. And so the same way we have peace with God and salvation, the very same way we have access to God, that is, to be clear, through Christ. It is the same way that we can come into his presence Sunday after Sunday, not fearful, not unsure, but singing, rejoicing with gladness. And what is our rightful response then? I think it's something like what we see in Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his that we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. And so as we consider the Creator God, it is good and right for us to sing. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. As we consider the infinitely holy and righteous God, it is good and right for us to sing. Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy, there is none beside thee perfect in power, love, and purity. As we consider the faithful God, it is good and right for us to sing, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. For who he is and what he's done, our right response is to worship him in thankfulness. He is infinitely worthy of our worship, and that's why we sing. And if that's why we sing, it helps us quite a bit with how we sing. You see, if this is our worthy God, and even though we are unworthy, he has welcomed us in on the merit of Christ, we ought to come before him with a deep reverence and thankfulness and joy. We ought to come like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 or like Moses at the burning bush, aware of our unworthiness and yet grateful that he is gracious. So much of what makes the modern worship movement unhelpful sometimes is that it can be the 
opposite of this. Whether it's the us-centered approach to corporate worship and singing, where we welcome God in, as it were, on our terms, or it's the more flippant, fun, out-of-control approach. We worship a worthy God. And every moment of gathered worship is steeped in First Chronicles 29.14 theology that by his strength and in the many layers of grace and provision that are his, we come and so we worship God on God's terms, not our own, because he is gracious to welcome us in. And so in a very straightforward way, friends, come prepared. Come with a thankful heart every Sunday morning, ready to worship God for who he is and what he's done for you and for others around you. And be humbled with gratitude that he's saved us and loved us and receives our praise by nothing we've done and by no merit of what we bring or what we sing but all of grace. God is worthy of our worship, and that's why we sing. It brings us to a second reason why we sing, and it's that music is a God-ordained expression of worship. Music is a God-ordained expression of worship. Now, if you had a few minutes or even a few hours if you have time to kill and you wanted to laugh really really hard uh, you could open this app this ancient app at this point called instagram and you could type in the words worship fails worship fails some of you guys have wasted too much time on that count just like me and you have seen Uh, the countless examples of being caught using auto-tune or crosses and trees falling on stage or worship leaders saying things that are far more regrettable than things that we'd ever say into a microphone. Uh, Worship fails. Well, when it comes to Scripture, we know there are far more serious worship. You think of examples in the Old Testament Cain or Nadab and Abihu, just to name a few, worship fails. And you think immediately when you uh, see accounts like that in Scripture, uh, well, if God is worthy of our worship and uh, He is such an infinitely holy God, how can we approach Him? What is the right way to do so? God has ordained in music one beautiful way to approach him and express our worship. And it's a beautiful thing. You see, while worship is not equal to music, they're not the same thing, uh, there's not an equal sign between those two words, music is indeed a God-ordained expression of worship that we are to take up and use. We could say this way, music is a worthy expression of worship to an infinitely worthy God. God created music, by the way. 
So when we sing, we take up a tool God has graciously given us and we use it to worship Him, the very creator of music. We see the beauty of God's gift of music all throughout Scripture and how it is a common grace gift that in a transcendently beautiful way intrinsically points to the Creator. We see this on the biggest stage. We see that creation sings from the very beginning of creation to its consummation. The music of creation rings out. If we had time, we could go to Job 38 and see that when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, there was music in creation. And then we could go to Revelation 5 and see that every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them sings praise to the Lamb who is worthy. And so from creation to the very end of this world, the music of creation rings out. And it's something that Psalm 19 tells us about. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. A day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Mike Cosper says this of Psalm 19. I think it's a helpful way for us to quickly understand uh, that psalm and how it relates to music. He says this, creation song can be heard in the crash of perfect spiraling waves on the coast of South Africa and the explosion of lava on Hawaii. Its melody is as subtle as the whirring of bees and as gentle as a breeze across the black hills of South Dakota. The psalmist isn't merely being metaphorical. He's noticing that God has imbued creation with a song that can be heard by ears tuned to the work of the Creator. I think that's so helpfully and beautifully said. It's what we see when we look out into nature. Now, praise God, music isn't just creation's gig. God has given us, as the crown of his creation, uh, the ability to systematize and create and write and perform beautiful music. Among God's people, we see in Scripture even that music has a distinct role, a role that is very purposeful and very powerful. We see this in Israel's own history. Songs like the Song of Moses in Exodus 15 or Asaph's Psalm of Praise in 1 Chronicles 16. Distinct and formative musical moments in Israel's history that demonstrate the power of music to the glory of God. And yet we also see that music is not just for those big moments in Israel's history. We see it all throughout Israel's history. Uh, God's people sang. They sang songs of deliverance, songs of coronation, uh, dirges, songs of lament, 
songs celebrating and commemorating the faithfulness of God. Uh, From the book of Psalms to the song of Solomon uh, to Lamentations, God's people sang. Uh, With the songs of ancient songwriters like David, the most famous perhaps, or Asaph, or Solomon, who wrote a thousand and five songs, Scripture tells us, uh, to the sons of Korah, uh, my favorite, his name is He-Man, the Ezraite. God's people sang with leaders like these, worship leaders. If you look at First Chronicles 6, Uh, There are musicians listed out by name, individuals who were dedicated to the service of song. In 1 Chronicles 16, there are people and instruments in that passage, namely trumpets and cymbals, ancient ancient, uh, drum sets, if if you will, set aside for sacred songs specifically. Uh, The Psalms, the three-part songbook of ancient Israel, contain reference and instruction to specific instruments and choirs. Uh, That shows us the intricacy and beauty of music. Uh, The most distinct of may be Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so within the people of God, there is an obvious priority uh, and structure to stewarding a music ministry. There is skill and excellence and beauty and variety in the music of God's people, both ancient and current day. Now, as we get to the New Testament, we don't see nearly as much mention of music, but we do know that in Matthew 26, Jesus, for example, sang a hymn with his disciples. In Acts 16, as if it were normal, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God in prison. And we see the variety of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and Colossians and in Ephesians. We sing now as God's people, and we will sing into eternity, forever praising Him. Now, to be clear, this isn't the eschatology Sundays in July session. You can look that one up on the internet. But suffice it to say, Uh, To not overstate the importance of music in eternity, singing is not the only thing we will do in eternity. But it is one of the things we will do in eternity. It's something we all look forward to. 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Music is part of God's creation and it's a gift to mankind. As if it were an instrument tuned and handed to his people. And so no wonder the beauty of music has enduring relevance. When we sing, friends, we engage in the beauty of God's design that is music. It's like when you go camping or when you go on that road trip and you look out across the Grand Canyon and you behold and you sleep under the stars and you immerse yourself in God's creation. The aesthetic of the natural world moves you to trace the hand of God in creating it. Music does the same thing. Because of the aesthetic of God's creation of music, music moves us. There is power and emotion and beauty in music that is almost unexplainable. Let me give you a few examples of how music moves us. See if you recognize this song. Hopefully not from a Sunday morning. I've got sunshine on a cloudy day. When it's cold outside, I've got the month of May. Now when I say those words, they mean something. But the tune immediately comes to mind for most of you. And it means something a whole lot more. Maybe the first date or the time you got engaged. Or if you're single Pringle, it's just a song you hear on the radio. <laughs> How about this one? I, E-I, E-I, will always love you. You heard that one too. And at some point, it may be a song that moved you. Uh, music brings to life the words that we speak. And in the church, the institution God has given that has the corner on objective truth, how much more grace upon grace that we can sing, that to beautiful tunes and melodies and harmonies, we can sing truth and praise to our God when we gather as his people. That with music, we can genuinely express in beautiful song our longing and affection for the Lord. There's a hymn that so beautifully encapsulates this truth. Come Christians, join to sing. Loud praise to Christ our King. Let all with heart and voice before his throne rejoice. Praise is his gracious choice. Hallelujah. Amen. Now there's something to be said about the worship also in the artistry and creativity of making music as well. You see, music is made. It doesn't just come from the radio box. It's written. It's played. It's Song, it's produced, it's created. 
When an image bearer creates, it is a microcosm of the creative action of our God. And for the, crea- for the Christian musician who does so to God's glory and not their own, there is something beautiful and multiplicative of worship that is uniquely meaningful. When you see or listen to a talented musician or a singer in the worship service, there should be something awe-inspiring and God-glorifying in how they create. It's good to wonder at their skill and worship God because of it. For the musicians in the room, through music and the act of creating music, you have the great opportunity and potential every time you step to the mic to magnify the glory of the creator. Let me speak to the musicians in the room, the worship leaders in the room for just a moment. We ought to pursue excellence in this. Absolutely. But you know, and I know, the struggle, the fight against your own pride, sometimes even the temptation to find your primary identity in making music, sometimes even in a weird kind of way that only musicians understand, we work out our standing with God in the way that we make music or when we mess up, we feel like something's wrong. We need to be reminded this morning that we ought to never let our pursuit of excellence, let us get out in front of our creator in our creating. That he is the creator of music. He is the giver of our abilities. He is the provider of our strength. And so when we succeed and when we mess up, we are his. So let that guide your approach through and through as a musician. Harold Best says it this way. Nothing but harm lies ahead if we try to authenticate ourselves with our musical works or become so attached to them. Addicted might be a better word that we have no sense of worth or being without this proof of our existence. Our union with God, both in our createdness and our redemption, is the only authenticity worth claiming. And our music making must continually bear witness to that. Musicians, let our music making take on the very posture of worship and how we understand our task on Sunday mornings. And then for everyone in the room, I think there's another implication here in regards to the gift that is music. The fact that music is to us a gift, as we see the beauty and variety of music in the church, that should drive us to gratitude and not gatekeeping. We ought to be beholders, thankful worshipers, not those who determine with absolute certainty what is best for everyone around the world. 
there are churches on the plains of Africa that do not have a sound system and have nothing but a dusty hymnal, and yet their imperfect worship, a church of 20 raising their voices to God, is as excellent of worship as happens across the way here. And praise God for what we have here. But let us have a view of worship and music that sees it as a gift from a gracious God. I get it. You're allowed to have preferences. You're allowed to have favorites. You're allowed to think it was too loud. <laughs> it's okay. But again and also, just like for musicians, let's, gra- let's let our grasp of what music is from the scriptures and what worship is define our approach and how we express our opinions or maybe hold them back every now and then and then how we see others in the kingdom who do it maybe a different way than we do. Let's let our thankfulness in this slow us down just a little bit. That brings us to a third reason why we sing, and it's this. We sing because music is an instrument for remembering and rehearsing truth. Music is an instrument for remembering and rehearsing truth. Music is not only an intrinsically beautiful tool for worshiping God in and of itself, it is also in the church a powerful instrument for us as God's people to instill the truth of God in our hearts. John 4, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well and he's talking about how worship uh, will not be confined to a particular place or people. And he says this, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Worship, both that of our lives and that of our lips on a Sunday morning, must be in spirit and in truth. It must be from the heart And it must be consistent with God's truth. Let's think back on Pastor John's definition of worship. He says, true worship is a response of adoration and praise prompted by truth that God has revealed. You see, true worship is not just a a feeling. It's not something we just conjure up because the moment is right. It is always a response even if, even if in simple fact, to who God is and what he has done. So much of today's Christian music is so genuine, so heartfelt. But sadly, often shallow or superficial Sadly, sometimes even lacking in theological accuracy or sometimes biblical basis in general. There are good songs being written 
And the good songs that are being written by God's grace do what John 4 calls us to. And what John 4 calls us to is not a balance. It's a both and. We must worship in spirit and truth. Now we get this. We're a church that is built on truth. Verse by verse, our dear pastor preaches the word of God every Sunday. And we have all benefited so greatly from the truth being preached. I think that sometimes in light of that, and not because of that, but in light of that, we can fall into the trap of relegating any and everything else in the worship service as front matter, the stuff before the sermon. Uh, Brian Chapel says it this way, uh, that opening stuff is in most people's minds the requisite assortment of hymns and prayers that we need to chug through prior to the real thing, the sermon. The stuff that fills the time early in the service is considered only the prelude to the sermon, the opening act to the main event, or the pleasantries we need to get past so that we can get to the meat of the matter. Typically, no one thinks much about the opening stuff and no one is going to complain about it unless someone changes the traditional order, changes a familiar tune, or forgets the offering. He goes on to say, if a complaint comes, it is not likely to be based on a rationale rooted in gospel priorities. People will instead talk about their lack of comfort with what is personally unfamiliar or uninspiring or about someone else's lack of respect for what is traditional because they have not been taught to think of the worship service as having gospel purposes. People instinctively think of its elements only in terms of personal preference. What makes me feel good, comfortable, or respectful. Well, friends, I believe what God's word shows us is that in and around the ministry of God's word, rightfully held high, amen and amen, music, and in particular the singing of God's people, aids and supports, and even itself does the work of the word. That music in the church has gospel purposes. First Timothy 3.15 tells us that the church is a pillar and support of the truth. And in the church, the household of God, congregational singing is where this great purpose of the church converges with the beauty of music that we just talked about. Now, up until now, you've probably noticed I've equated music in the church with congregational singing. It's kind of what we said we'd do this morning at the beginning. Uh, but I've talked about it as if it were the only kind of music that does or should exist in the worship service. And we know, even here at Grace, we have choir anthems and instrumental praise and vocal solos. Well, I believe, and I know our leadership would be of the same mind, uh, to think 
that the primary voice, the main instrument of the church's worship is the great choir. The congregation raising its voice as one. And in doing so, we remember and we rehearse truth together as God's people. That's an understanding derived from Colossians chapter 3. You can turn there or it's going to be on the screen, at least the one verse we'll look at. But Colossians 3 and verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And the verse 17 goes on to broaden that concept. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now notice the main idea there. Let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And then the modifiers there, right? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. There's much to be said there. And then how? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then don't let this escape you. The same posture we've seen this entire morning so far, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Through music, and specifically our participation in congregational singing on Sunday mornings, we let the truth of the gospel and the hope we have in Christ and the truth of the whole counsel of God that envelops all of that, we let truth as we sing dwell in us richly. As we sing, truth resonates in our hearts. It marinates. It is instilled. When we sing, we are formed and informed with the truth of God's word. That's why as much as vain repetitions and repeated choruses can be unhelpful, we do indeed find repetition in our songs and in our services. Uh, That's how music works. And that's what makes truth memorable. Uh, That's Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. And then reason after reason after reason. For his steadfast love endures forever. 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 It's also why we can sing hymns that are chock full of biblical truth. And then in the next moment, we can sing simple songs of adoration to God in response to truth. It's also why we can sing songs that are true and then repeat things that are already true. And then we can sing in hope of things that are not yet true but will be true. 
Because as we sing, we sing in the already but not yet existence of the Christian's confident hope. Music is our great help given by God to remember and rehearse his truth in various ways. So we're left with a question. What do we do with solos and instrumentals? We should engage actively. No, not like that. Don't sing. Let, let, let Mike Bohr do his thing. But that's what the lyrics or the hymn number in the grace today are for. That's what your memory is for in terms of the lyrics that you remember when you hear a tune. And if worship is about the soaring of the heart to God in praise and the remembering and rehearsing of truth, you and I can engage in that even if the quartet is doing the singing with only notes that go with words that we know. So, friends, pay attention to what we sing. Be mindful of the truth in the songs. Trace the direction of how each song is expressing truth and align your heart with it in a Godward way. That brings us to a fourth and final reason why we sing, and it's somewhat related Uh, Reason number four of why we sing. We sing because music captures the voice of the gathered church. Music captures the voice of the gathered church. Now music in the modern church has become a whole different beast. Multi-site campuses with synchronous singing even to the millisecond, lots and lots of technology, really, really, really loud guitar amplifiers, all backstaged, uh, mic'd in isolation perfectly, and red pianos that mimic old organs. Music has become really, really complicated. The church, at times, has gotten away from the heart of worship and gone toward the performance of worship. We have let go of a core attitude of thankfulness, of an understanding of God's worthiness and our unworthiness, to an understanding of our excellence and our preparedness and our beauty in the way that we make our music to God. It's all about the worship experience. Now, sometimes, granted, this is in pursuit of excellence. Amen and amen. Sometimes it's because of the added element of the Christian music industry. And so, If you're not making just a little bit of money off your Sunday morning service, something is wrong with the way that your church is set up. Or maybe it's the lack of spiritual concern 
with the musicians other than the skill that they bring. Maybe it's because of, in some of these churches, sadly, a deficient theological understanding of worship. Music in the church has, unfortunately, become sometimes largely this performance. It's centered on the people on stage, or about the arrangements, or about the amount of reverb dialed in, or about the worship experience on uh, Saturday night, or any of the six times on Sunday uh, throughout the day that fits your schedule. And in large part, it is this performance aspect that I believe is the root of a lot of what is most dangerous about and distasteful about music in the modern church. I believe a a biblical perspective of congregational singing, of music at its high point in the church with voices raised together, it's centered on mutual participation in raising our voices together as people in praise. Congregational singing that is truly congregational. And praise God, that's what we do here at Grace. This is Colossians 3 again, that idea of teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom as we sing. You see, when we sing, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. We minister to one another in the trials and troubles of life. When we sing, and as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. We remind one another, and we teach one another, and admonish one another, in the fact of Christ's victory over sin and our union with him. When we sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, we guide each other toward the surpassing value of knowing Christ over the things of this world. When we sing, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne, We invite one another to exalt Christ in our hearts as he is Lord over all. Turn if you want to, or you'll see it on the screen, Ephesians 5. It's somewhat of a parallel passage to Colossians 3. Uh, Ephesians 5 is a helpful passage for us to see this context in which we need to understand our singing as truly congregational, truly part of life in God's church. Look at Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This passage is filled with so much instruction. It's really wide. It's broad. It's full of all of life. It's rooted in verse 1 of chapter 5, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And that entire chapter helps us to see that we need to watch our walk, uh, to not be unwise, but wise, aware of and aligned to the will of the Lord in our lives. As opposed to being drunk with or filled with wine, controlled by a substance as was the norm of the day back then and isn't too much different now, instead of that, Christians are to be filled with, uh, controlled by the Spirit, to live in a way that continually is at the control of the Spirit of God, submitted to, obedient to the Spirit of God in our lives. Well, look again at the outflow of that in verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. As if a natural outcome, a natural outflow. You can't help it. Singing. Singing. And singing in a way that is addressing one another. You see, singing is not an isolated event. It is a time of worship to God. It is a rehearsal of truth. It is a refreshment and a reminder of spiritual realities every time we sing. But it's not just those things. Our singing as the gathered church is with and to one another, flowing out of and connected to life in community with one another. Congregational singing is an encapsulation of life in the body of Christ. It's a natural and integral part of our love and service to one another in all of life. In fact, we see the same thing in Colossians 3, which is a passage full of rich instruction for the Christian life. In fact, Colossians 3 perhaps is even more interpersonal in nature than Ephesians 5. It speaks of forgiveness and love and peace, the things that we are to put on then as God's chosen ones. Both of these passages, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, big picture, help us to see that Corporate singing must be understood and must be enjoyed and must be participated in in a way that is integral to life in the church. In other words, singing is not a separate standalone task. It's not to be done or to be understood in isolation. The singing of God's gathered people is to be part and parcel to the loving and serving, caring, admonishing, burden-bearing Ephesians 4 kind of building up the body of Christ in love. And so when we sing, it is three and a half minutes at a time of focused, unified effort 
in which you and I together as one, though many, purposefully and beautifully express that which we also live out. Yes, in worship to God, but also in responsibility of love toward one another. If you are a worship leader or a musician in the room, that is a word this morning. I know you. You know me. We know the tendency. We lead others, but from up front. We'd rather wrap cables afterward than walk through life with people. We'll say profound things and sing beautiful songs the best we can into the microphone, but getting involved in discipleship is a struggle sometimes. This is a call to let music be the fifth priority thing you do in your love and service to others, to all the other ways that you love and serve others in your life. If singing is but one aspect of our worship to God, how appropriate and how necessary is it for those who God has gifted with musical abilities to be integrally connected to the local church, reflective of the same magnitude of worship in all of life as with music? And for the rest of us, come on Sundays to gather for corporate worship to serve Others. Yes, with your singing in the great choir, but also in whatever way God would have you. Be done with slipping in late and hoping no one notices you. If we could just grab a hold of this truth that as we sing, we indeed sing in praise to God, but that also we sing to instruct and admonish one another, I believe we would grow and excel all that much more as a church. That God might use music as a catalyst to transform our love for one another in the church. Over and against uh, preferences and so-called liberties, Paul writes at the end of his instruction in Romans 14 and 15, he writes this, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The idea that Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pictures the beauty of unity over and against preference within the church, he pictures as that as harmony and as singing together with one voice, I believe is a testament to the power and transcendence of music, not just in and of itself, but also in the way that God can use it to grow and equip his church. And so friends, may we treasure music and worship through music deeply as God's people. Would you pray with me? 
Uh, Father, thank you for this time that we've had to uh, look at music and worship and a biblical perspective of how we should approach uh, worship on Sunday mornings. God, help us, we ask, to not only understand these things as is clear in your word, but Father, help us every week to come prepared with thankfulness in our hearts to you, O God. And yet at the same time, God, we ask that our lives, not just on Sunday, but every day, would be that same heart of thankful worship to the worthy God that you are. Thank you, Father, for this time. We pray even now as uh, your blessing as we go to the worship service, second hour, and we ask your kindness that, Father, you would receive our praise. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.